You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Primal Radio, we are back. Jim is sick today. He has the flu. I hope he doesn't have the coronavirus. When we do shows, we get like a whole bunch of listens like in the first like week of them coming out. And then over a longer period of time, people are always listening. You know, like you get like 10 listens a day, like five listens here and there. Even shows that we recorded years ago. And I wonder how we'll look back on this coronavirus thing. Whether it will be like a massive deal where lots of people got real sick. Or something we look back and say, oh, that was, you know, we made a big deal out of nothing, really. Certainly, it makes a nice change as an English person not to be talking about Brexit. So, today's show, this week's guest is born in Philly. He works with fitness clients around the world and runs retreats for those people who suffered domestic abuse. He's been a victim of abuse himself and is inspired to help others overcome great adversity as he's done. Today's guest is Darnell Davies, also known as Nelly Davies. He is joining us today to talk about his new book, Dream Awake. Welcome to the show, Nelly. Thanks for having me, brother. Thanks for having me. And hello, Primal Radio people. Thanks for joining us. You are over here in London, right? Actually, you're now back in the US. Absolutely. Just missed you. Just missed you. Got back two days ago. Always bittersweet because it's amazing to be back here in Miami Beach. I love, love, love London so much. That's awesome. Second home for you. You're real well-traveled, right? Pretty much. A couple passports filled up. Proud to say. (laughs) So the reason we've got you here is Emma was kind of inspired by your story. And she was like, look, he's a perfect fit for your radio show. We talk to a lot of people who are big into fighting and whether that's martial arts combat sports we've had a lot of like police military guys on here but the other big angle and I guess if you just tried to talk about a physical thing like fighting it wouldn't be a a particularly interesting show it's the story the life around that and we talk about the kind of warrior mindset and I think that often grows out of adversity. You've got a real story about adversity and it's grown out of the abuse you suffered as a child, watching your mum get abused and sadly to the point where her life was taken from her by your father. You've gone through a lot in your life, which we'll touch on, but you've turned things around and you've got a real powerful message about how people can kind of use that experience or learn from what you've done to improve their lives. Yeah. Top line, sort of the kind of the book and the purpose of it, what you hope people will get out of it. You know, a lot of times when people see me, see me personally or through social media, they see this this spark of light, you know, always uh, happy and positive and uh, looking to cheer other people up. But then when they find out my story, it's often shocking. And what I often tell people when they hear my story, because then I'll ask about them and they go, my life is nothing like this, this, that, and the other. I try to expose as much about the adversity that I went through, that I lived through, so people are able to see some way their own pain. I just think that's the one common thread in us, aside from us all having a heartbeat and uh, basic organs we all have dealt with or lived with some form of emotional pain at some point. 
Could you sort of give us an overview of what your family life was like? Taking the abuse aside, you know, did you grow up in a rough neighborhood? Were your parents both working? Those kind of things. I actually grew up in a typical black middle class neighborhood. Parents were very young, uh, as well as my grandparents. My grandmother had my mother when she was 15. Uh, Her and my grandfather um, lied about their names, uh, their ages, actually, to get married early. So they got married at like 15, 16 years old. And they went on to have four other children, well, four kids, but my mom was the oldest. And then my mom had me when she was 15. So I had a really cool family. Uh, Everything was, you know, by all outside appearances, nice looking, well-dressed. Grandfather's a, a contractor at his own carpentry business. So our house looked amazing. And my mom, the house that we lived in uh, with my younger brother, sister, my dad, like all outside appearances, regular family, beautiful, fun family. Yeah, things appeared to be really, uh, really cool. But because like most families, we, we had a lot of secrets and we did really good at hiding those secrets. And what form did the abuse take? Um, physical. Physical, I mean, of course, uh, verbal and mental as well. The older I got, the more I'm able to understand the verbal and mental abuse. But uh, it was physical. Uh, my father, um, him and my mother got together really young. And I think they both were running from things in their lives. This was the savior relationship or the savior person. And they invested everything into each other. And um, my father had control issues. He had uh, insecurity issues. Um, I mean, the list goes on. His pain and his his wounds were very deep, uh, as well as my mother. And my mother wasn't um, she, she'd never back down like they got into fights. They would actually fight. He just won every time. Um, but, yeah, they would fight. But it was always, you know, initiated by him. And um, when he would leave the house, I was often the one that was there to, you know, get the ice packs from mom and whatever she needed. And, you know, of course, keep the secret when she puts makeup on the wounds the next day and we got to see family or friends or something like that. And this was right from a young age, right? And and for a period of about 10 years. Yeah, I, she she was murdered when I was 10. So it was as far as I can remember. Right. That must have been real tough. And you were the oldest of three? Yeah, I'm the oldest of three. I got a younger sister. She's four years younger and a brother seven years younger. So they were like, you know, a lot of my responsibility growing up, always looking after them and, you know, kind of making sure they're okay and making sure mom's okay and, at the same time, keeping a smile on my face in the classroom, cracking up when I went to school. Were you aware of any sort of like causation for your father? Like Jordan Peterson talks about how if there was a direct correlation between someone gets abused and then they become an abuser, the whole world would be abusers right now. So it's not as simple as sort of saying, yeah, yeah. just because it happened to you, you would go and do it to someone else. But you know, were there factors in his life that made him the way he was, in your opinion? Yeah, I, and I, and I kind of try to, I talk about that in the book a little bit because, you know, in writing the book, I had to learn a lot about my father and my mother, um, the things that I didn't know. So I would ask friends and, you know, relatives and their, their siblings to give me little anecdotes and stories and things of that nature. Yeah, my father, he lost his father when he was really young. He was molested when he was young. He was the only boy for a long time in a large family of sisters. I think he had five sisters. He was dealing with a lot, and um, he had a temper, but he had a lot of wounds. He had a hell of a lot of wounds. And like I said, I get more into it, you know, in in like a reflection type of way, the way I wrote it. 
so people can like kind of see maybe something within them because I see some things in him that you know of course I'm his son that I carry as well so yeah but he had a lot of wounds bro it was uh just the way he was raised plus he was spoiled as well these women always gave him everything they wanted I mean and anything that he wanted his older sisters and his mother so then when it came time for him to not have exactly what he wanted and said to my mother all hell was gonna break loose I listened to your podcast and we'll come on to that in a bit. But mm-hmm. um, Angie was saying how, you know, kn- knowing your family, there's a lot of love there. You know, it's a big family and there's a lot of love outside of that unit, which was focused around your dad. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. But it's a tough love, too. I didn't grow up with a really doting family when I would travel or go to my friends' houses and I see these families like make a big deal when... The brother hasn't been there for like five days and they're all excited to see him and stuff like this. And I never really had that doting type. I remember the first place I lived outside of America was Australia. And I came back after like a year. My my, my, my family, you know, they kind of walked to my grandma's house like they saw me yesterday. Like, hey, what's up, bro? Like, I was like, yo, when, when I was over in Australia, man, the guy was away for a week and his family, you know, started a parade. You know, like it's like, but, you know, so we had a really, really tough love. Um, my family never wanted to give too much attention to the pain or the success in your life and just keep it at an even kill, which I thought that I thought it was amazing. A lot of people struggle to understand why people stay in abusive relationships. And that's mm-hmm. naiveness from them. Could you tell us about sort of, you know, were there times when it, you felt like she, she would leave or, you know, was there, there was some real love there between her and your father at times or? I was really torn on that part because whenever he would hit her, whenever he would yell at her, I not only wanted her to leave, I wanted him dead. You know, I wanted something bad to happen to him so he could never touch her again. And then the next day we would have a good day. And that's all I want is my family again. So it's like, you know, for that little temporary happiness when, you know, everybody is assured that it'll never happen again, it'll never happen again. That's all I wanted. I wanted to live and hit her the next day, you know, as like, please, let's go, mom, let's go. And um, so I'm sure mom, my mom was just as torn. You know what I mean? Did you feel mad at her at times? The only time I clearly remember being mad is when she told me that she was finally leaving him. She had a, she had a restraining order against him um, and she was going to file for divorce. And this was the night before she was murdered. And that is the only time I remember being mad at her. I don't know. No, no, no. Um, actually, we didn't talk about that on my podcast. But yeah, um, that was the only time that I was ever mad at her. And it was the night before she died. Um, I lived with a lot of guilt for that. But mom was my best friend. You know, I rarely have ever got mad at her unless, you know, I was punished for something. I, this is a difficult one. But like listening to that podcast, was there, there was some element there where it's like you'd given him the key or invited him back in? Is that... Yeah, what happened was my mother had told him that she had got a she had got the locks changed, but reality she she couldn't afford to get the locks changed at that time. So when uh, he had came over to uh, my sister's bike was broken, I snuck him in the back door so he can fix my sister's bike. And at that point, he asked me, "Hey, no, let, let me see your key real quick." And I saw him match our keys together, but I didn't think anything of it. And then, of course, um, a couple of days later, it kind of hit me. Like, well, and I'm 10 years old. Like, why did he do that? And then the mother was murdered, and they saw that there was no forced entry. 
I think I sat on that for like a week before I told somebody about the key thing, but uh, because I just didn't want to believe that one, he could do something like that, and two, that I could possibly be involved. And at 10 years old, that was scary. Massive burden on your shoulders at that age, very deep. And then your father was like obviously arrested for that at that young age. You were put in a position where you had to testify against him. Well, crazy enough, he wasn't arrested. Well, he was arrested immediately, but they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him. One, I couldn't remember a lot of things um, because of the post-traumatic stress. And two, he left my mother underwater for over 24 hours. So all the DNA uh, around her fingers, hands, and all, it was all destroyed. So, yeah, it took three years for me to start remembering things and therapy for them to finally reopen a case, prosecute them. When it came time, I always knew, too. And maybe that had something to do with the blockage as well, because I knew whatever I re- remembered, I would have to testify. Yeah. Because I was I, I met with um, detectives and prosecutors for months and months and months after it happened for them to try to get something out of me. So I knew that responsibility was there that I would have to testify. And I knew once I did it, it made my family so happy that I remember these things. But it was the scariest thing before that I ever experienced in my life. So what was his defense before that? So for this three-year period, was he had he been charged with that offense? Like, for a three-year period, was he walking free or...? Yeah, he was, he was walking free. He was living in the same neighborhood as us. Wow. We actually almost hit him in the car one day. Uh, him and his friend were in a car, and he, his friend ran a stop sign, and we almost hit head on. Your head goes against the dashboard, and look up, and I see my father. He's like seeing a ghost. Wow. But that was the only time I, that was the only time I ever saw him. He did everything he could to avoid us during that time period. Yeah, of course. So you've gone through this therapy process. I guess you've been interviewed by police officers. You've got some sort of coaching about how to behave on the stand from reading your book. If you don't know something, don't say it and things like that. Because they must have been worried that they weren't going to get the conviction if that DNA evidence wasn't there. Yeah, funny enough, uh, the first agent that I had for my book, he got me on some TV show to do some promotion about the book. And on a TV show, they asked about, you know, this preparation for the case. And the woman who helped me prepare, the assistant district attorney at the time, and they said, you know, do you still think about her at times? Like, I think about her all the time. She was, you know, she was like a hero to me at that time. And uh, they go, you think she, you think she thinks about you? And I'm like, um, no, I'm probably one of a million cases. And they go, you're wrong. She does. And then she comes out. And to this day, like, she's like back in my life, full force, like an aunt, a cop advisor uh even played as an editor for the book uh at some point but uh andrea folks yeah she uh she was an amazing woman and she really helped me down and and uh helped me be strong for that moment you then went to live with your grandma yeah and how was like sort of life as a teenager you know with that i guess maybe suppressed at the back of your mind oh man it was way more suppression than that uh my grandmother uh was a Jehovah's Witness. She became a Jehovah's Witness the year I was born. But living with my mother, we didn't go to any religious services or anything. Um, maybe every now and then we'd go to church service with my great. We didn't do any of the, um, the religious stuff. So when mom died, we moved in with grandma and grandpa, and everything changes immediately. Like when mom was alive, I had girlfriends and I can have fun. And then when we move in with grandma and grandpa, it's like uh, no girl phone calls, curfews, like everything just changed immediately and then you know for three kids 
it was hard because it's like we just lost our mom and now we move into a house where we can't live the way we're used to living. But it was cool as well because the religion taught us at that time the resurrection. And that if we are good kids, then we'll see our mother in a resurrection. So I took off at that point. I wanted to be the best Jehovah's Witness I could. I was knocking on doors every week. And funny enough, when I got into sales and marketing, I got a couple jobs because of the Jehovah's Witness background. On a stranger's door and start talking about God, we want you. <laughs> In a way, everyone should do a sales role because it gets you out talking to people. And particularly, you know, if, if, if it's that thing to be able to, a lot of men are too shy to go and talk to a woman in a bar. I certainly am. Like, I can't do it cold. I've become that guy now. I, I, I used to be pop, pop, pop. I was like, quick draw McGraw. But now I'm like, uh, looking away and things. And, you know, that type of cold calling, it just, you're facing a fear every day. You know, like that sales type of situation. Um, and I didn't know as a kid, but it really, really instilled some uh, communication skills with me as well as just sales. You know, I would read the information before I knocked on the door and have an angle of how I want to talk to the person. Use my little kid role as I know what I'm talking about. I'm a smart kid. You know, it was it, it, it took me a lot. It took me a lot. But on the flip side, I lost a lot of freedom. I guess the discipline was good for you, but a lot of kids would shrink into their shell uh-huh. as a result of what happened. You put on this persona to the world. I mean, one thing I heard was how you'd gone down to the barber shop at you know a very young age to get a job sweeping up the hair because you were entrepreneurial. You wanted to be out there doing things, yep. right? But would you describe that as just a mask, right? The real you was inside sort of small, if you will. If I understood the question correctly, I think I found small challenges. I think the real me is what's coming out now, honoring who I am, honoring my gifts, honoring my superpowers. And I I speak about superpowers a lot in the book um, because um, something that my mom told me when she came to visit me for the first time after she passed, she told me that I can create anything that I want if I think about it right before I dream. And if I get really good at it with my dreams, then I can do it in real life. And then, you know, she related this to superpowers. And then she asked me, what superpowers do I want? So I kind of played this game all my life. And I usually, it's an icebreaker game. If I'm in a room with a bunch of people, I ask them, what three superpowers would you choose? If you have three superpowers, what would you choose? You hear a lot of the same ones over and over again. I want to read people's minds uh, and things of that nature. But when mom taught me that I had superpowers and I can create any reality, that right there gave me the confidence to go in and ask the manager of the barbershop, can I sweep the hair up? And so many other things that I've done, positive and negative, it gave me some confidence. Did you think strongly about what other people thought of you? Or after what had happened, were you quite like, look, I don't care what other people think of me. Was it liberating in any way? Not at all. I cared very much what everybody thought most of my life, and still do at times, um, because I never felt accepted. But it was because I wasn't accepting myself. I was always an outcast. I, I didn't hang out with the kids in my neighborhood. I knew what everyday life was like for them. I wanted to hang out with Jason and Elliot and my Jewish friends because I can learn so much more about a life that I have no idea of what's going on. Same reason why a lot of people you know, always get on me. You don't date Americans. You don't date black women. You don't date white women. I always want to see something else. I want to, I want to learn something new. You've got this disciplined life with grandma. Right. And now it's time to go off to college. So that discipline's going away and you found a new hobby, right? The discipline was still there. The discipline was still there. I definitely found a new hobby though. 
and it was uh, it was smoking weed, bro. Uh, so my mom was 25 when she died. So I didn't know at the time because she would always light incense when they smoked in the house. And when uh, I was, I, my grandmom let me stay out late for a New Year's Eve party and I begging one of my friends to drive me home and he wants to smoke a blunt before he drives. And I'm like, and he's like, you smoke, don't you? And I lied and said yes. And then I coughed my lungs out. Uh, but when the high hit me, it really brought back so much nostalgia, like of my childhood. And that's when it kicked in, like mom smoked weed. <laughs> so at that point right there, you know, I always look, I lived my life like thinking mom was looking at everything I did. So when I smoked weed, of course, that's bad. That's drugs. I was like, you smoked it too, mom. You know what I mean? And it made you feel like this. So I'm going to keep doing it. And at the time, I probably had like two, three jobs and I'm every day hustling. And I see my friends spending all this money on weed, which was ridiculous to me. You're going to spend half your check on some weed. But now if I can get it for them... <laughs> Uh, and then, it, yeah, it just kind of kicked in at that point, And it just went really, 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 really fast. So at first, this is just you selling to your college friends, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, it wasn't. It started in high school, you know, but just like uh, nicks and dimes. Like I would, I bought what you would call a double up. So basically you buy $100 worth in bags, you know, which was 10 dime bags. Oh, yeah, you buy that for 50 So you give the guy 50 and he gives you double back. So that was fun. I did that. I was like, man, that was quick. And then after that, it was like, you know, you just keep moving up, 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 because you always want more. You always want to, well, I always want to do better in everything I do. So it just, it got really big, really fast. And it was just one kid told his friends and I just basically, yo, I just want to deal with you. I'm going to empower you. So I had three customers uh, when I was making $40,000 a week, but they had universities. Right. This is now like a bit more of a, an operation. Is that just for all realness? Is that all you ever sold? Oh, never sold anything else because I grew up around that. Yeah. In that neighborhood, you know, so I saw the crackheads, you know, I saw how mean and the, those type of like the guys that sold cocaine, like they were killers. Yeah. But I never saw this with weed. Only people that sold weed were the Jamaicans and the Jamaicans were everything is Irish, man. <laughs> You know, so it was like, oh, okay, nothing's wrong with that. And mom smoked weed too, so it's all good. And then the main thing was I knew that if I ever got caught, it's weed. They go slap me on the wrist. Yeah. They, they, they take the weed from me and that was my mentality. A lot of states in the US have made weed legal now. Um, I don't know all the rules around it. In the UK, it's classed as what's called a, a category C drug. So it is illegal, but if a police officer finds it on you and it's in like a sort of personal consumption amount they'll just let you go and sort of they might take it off you i think or something like that but it's um mm -hmm. what you found with the legal system over there is they treated it like you're a murderer right <laughs> they, they, like they took it very fucking seriously crazy that you say that because i've never been arrested before never been convicted of a crime before first time offense marijuana and i was in there with time more than murderers First of all, how did you get caught? You know, what happened there? Now, that's a funny story because it was a two-stage process. I initially got caught when I was probably making about $10,000 a week. You know, it was fun. I was 19 years old. And um, some guys had got caught out in a small town, upstate Pennsylvania, because I didn't sell within Philadelphia, which is the major city. I always went outside. I found people outside of this city. But anyway, so these guys got caught. One kid gets caught with like a quarter ounce. And he tells him his guy, tells him his guy. It's like a domino effect. And 
it's 14 people all saying somehow, some way that the weed came from this guy, Nelly in Philly. I I only knew three of these guys, the three that I was selling to, but everybody else was saying my name because in this small town, you know, you're going to Philadelphia to get weed from a black guy. That's something you brag about and talk about a lot. So a lot of people in this town knew my name and I didn't even know these people. And then the to police, they got a warrant and they just came to Philadelphia and they kicked my door in and arrested me. Well, the law is that you can't, somebody can't just say, uh, yeah, I got this from this person and uh, they kicked their door in. You know, you got to corroborate that warrant. You have to, you know, investigate or whatever that person. Uh, they did none of that with me. Uh, they just kicked the door in. So when I got a lawyer, the lawyer saw that and the case was dismissed immediately. Before the case was dismissed, I prayed. <laughs> I prayed, God, please, 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 if you, if you, um, you know, help me get out of this, I'll never sell drugs again. Yeah. And of course, when I beat the charge, I thought about that prayer. But, you know, at the same time, I kind of felt invincible because I just beat this charge. So I, I went harder than I ever did before. And then three years later, no, two years later, that little charge became an indictment. It, it feels like double jeopardy. They didn't rearrest me or anything like that. It just became an indictment. Indictment in the States is, you know, they they sit 12 people in a room and they tell them all about you. And these 12 people decide, should you be indicted? And once you're indicted, you know, it's like it's really no defense that you have because you've been basically convicted before the trial even started. So three years later, I feel like I broke my promise to God. I was only looking at one year when they first arrested me. But because it became an indictment. Um, that one year turned into the maximum of the sentencing guidelines, which was four years. So when all these guys snitched on you, was that because they perceived you to be the top of the pyramid or it was like you were like the full guy? No, I was at the top. So you were giving it to the free people and they distributed to their guys. They all happened to know your name, which they shouldn't really have known. Yeah, but I, like I, said, I didn't operate under those uh, street rules or mob rules or anything. Like I said, it was just me and my homies. Let's have some fun. I mean, I tried to be as careful as possible, and I think I was for the most part. But I wasn't like, you know, don't say my real name. and Because <laughs> I never felt like a, a gangster, you know? So I just was, it was just fun, you know? <laughs> so they're kind of interviewing you, and it, you made the choice not to name anyone yourself. And that probably played a role in you getting, like, the, the maximum sentence. Absolutely. That and the fact that my lawyer told me that they don't know anything about you now. So how about you just say that you'll cooperate and just tell them anything? And it's funny because a movie called Usual Suspects, you ever seen Usual Suspects? Great film. Yeah. Kevin Spacey. (laughs) It had just come out right before all of this went down. And I'm a silly motherfucker. And and I I figured, all right, let me, uh, you know, give this a go. So I used all real people, but changed the names, locations, and this, that, and the other. And I told them these amazing stories. I basically <laughs> just changed the names. Kaiser Sosa and all that. And yeah. of course, I, yeah, I basically, basically did that because that's my lawyer. He kind of, you know, insinuated that. He didn't say it flat out, but he goes, I go, what do I tell him? I can't give up my guy. And he goes, um, they don't know anything about you. Tell them anything. You know, just make it make sense. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll just tell them, blah, 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 blah. And I changed everybody's names and numbers and cities and stuff like that. And because uh, my guy was in Texas, we were we were bringing it on the airplane, carry on luggage with no problem. So uh, I just couldn't do that. So I went in there, I told these stories and they got so pissed off after they started investigating my stories that none of it made sense that they asked the uh, judge, can we give this guy the max? Wow. So 
you go off to jail. Now, I have a little fascination uh-huh. with American jails. Okay. Um, and prison. And it's just... At least, at least one of us does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've not experienced anything, right? Fascination. No, in the UK, we get loads of shows about the US prison system, how rough it is, whether it's like Louis Farou being in there, Miami Mega Jail, that 60 days in jail where like regular civilians go in, you know, I'll watch it all. Anything like Escape from Alcatraz or Shawshank Redemption, it's all awesome, right? Yeah, I love that too. I'm more of a forensic files type of guy. I want to see how they got everything, gathered all the evidence. But good, I'm with you. <laughs> How did it match up to your perception? And then my next question is going to be, you ended up in the hole a a whole lot of the time. Right. But not for being a naughty boy in jail for another reason. If you could walk us through those things. Bro, you can never prepare. You can watch all those movies and television shows that you enjoy so much. Nothing, nothing, nothing prepares you for that. When you're actually living in the belly of the beast like you know it because it doesn't stop it's non-stop you know the voices in your head the voices out there the bang and the clang and the keys the cells like brother is is and then the crazy thing is and i guess i'm still going through some i guess form of post-traumatic stress from because i've blocked so many things out yeah like the, what i had to do to remember there's a part of the book like the book starts off i wrote the book initially in Bali because I was living in Australia and I went off to Bali and I, and, and I went there because I wanted to be around good spirits, good energy, because I knew I had to go back in these caves of pain. And I think that's what happened with prison. Like I, I kind of like forgot too many things because it was so much, it was a cave of pain. And uh, so far as the hole is concerned, that's just hell inside of hell. Uh, because in, in, in general population, you're at least able to see people and walk around and kind of make friendships and distract yourself throughout the day with mundane tasks and games and stuff like that. But in the whole, you just got to live with your pain. You got to stay right there in your pain. The whole for anyone who I guess who's listening, who is t- totally unaware, we're talking about solitary confinement, you know, a cell with minimal facilities and you're there 24 hours a day right yeah for, for what kind of period of time for me personally th- at that point yeah the first time was 35 days uh and that was i just you know i'm going through the process of getting becoming an inmate and like kind of like accepting it after that first week of just being another thing i did my lawyer said there's no way in the world that they would give me the maximum of sentencing guidelines like I had kind of hopes that I would get out in six months or something like this. So when a judge hit that gavel down and said, you know, four years, like I just was numb. So then I got to a point where it's just like, okay, you have to do this. You have to do this. So I, I'm ready and I'm ready to get my uniform so I can be a part of general population and get a job and, you know, try to start, you know, distracting myself. And then as soon as I get to the hole, they throw me a jumpsuit. I mean, to get to the prison, they throw me a jumpsuit instead because they realized while I was on a transport bus that one of the guys who told on me is actually serving time in this prison. So we can't have Davis in the same prison. So let's put Davis in the hole until we can transfer him to another prison. And this happened two times. Again, for the listeners benefit, there was a whole bunch of people that snitched on you and all the local jails were full of these guys. And they, for some reason, assumed you might be violent towards this guy was there any evidence to sort of suggest that 
snitches get stitches and all that. There was no evidence from my personal history or character or anything, but if something did happen to that person and they didn't try to prevent it, then they're liable. So, you know, you, you have to try in every way to prevent any confrontation. And the best way to do that was for me to get in the hole until we can put you back on a bus. And what age were you then? 22. Yeah, you're still a young man. Was there anything good to it? I mean... Very confused, young man. Too. Yeah. Was, was there anything sort of... When you've got all that time to yourself, are you sort of like reflecting, thinking how you're going to improve or are you just angry and mad about it? For the first two years, angry and mad. Angry and mad. Trying to deal with the fact that I can't control the situation has never been... You know, I think I've always tried to take control of every situation in my life after my mother was murdered. Um, because I didn't want life to surprise me anymore. So I think that was another reason why the young entrepreneur came out, because I wanted to be able to provide for myself. You know, uh, my grandparents never showed in any way that they would abandon us. But dealing with those abandonment issues as a kid, I always thought that something can happen. They could change their mind one morning, one day and say, you know, these kids are way too bad. We need to give them away. They were just on the doorsteps of retiring when my mother died. My uncle was uh, five years older than me. They were ready to start their life. So as a kid, I often feared, you know, we're going to get on their nerves and they're going to get rid of us. What is your opinion on corrections? I'm using that term deliberately because the idea of jail is it is supposed to reform. It's supposed to keep society safe and it's supposed to reform you. It's a business. It's a business time. It's a business it's a huge, huge business. And when I was in there, you know, I did things that made that that institution millions of dollars. Uh, we built park benches. They have their own produce. They have their own vegetable companies, big house vegetables, which sells off of the shelves in, in the supermarkets. It, it's a business, brother. And, and, and the, the thing, the, the, it's designed to keep the business going, keep these guys coming yeah. back, keep them coming back. And they all did. They call themselves PVs, parole violators. And you can be violated for the slightest little thing. No crime related, just saying something or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You go right back to jail and sometimes for years. Yeah, the UK doesn't have that same problem. Or at least if it does, I'm not aware of it. The prison population is gigantic in the US. That documentary, The 13th State, or, or thir- thir- sorry, 13th Amendment is incredible. I just was going to bring that up. That really, because we love Bill Clinton, black people. That was our guy. I think we gave him, you know, an honorary black card. <laughs> we made him black. Like, dude. Can I get one of them? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think we're going that one. But no, we were like, dude, you're one of us. And then this 13th uh, documentary comes out. And so many people were like, are you serious? And it was a huge shift in the, in the legal system at that time, but nobody paid attention to it. Similar to what's going on right now, they throw up these smoke screens, give a guy to us like Bill Clinton, who we can identify with. We feel like he's one of us. And, at the, and the whole time he's you know, creating a situation to keep uh, minorities imprisoned um, and at a disadvantage. Did you see some of that, you know, some of that worst side of jail, you know, whether it's like the sort of murdering, shanking, sexual assault? I saw it all. Unfortunately, my first three weeks um, after they finally let me out of the hole, 
uh, in general population in another prison. Uh, the first three weeks, two cell doors down from me, a guy's raped in his cell, and then he murders the guy that rapes him. And they put us in the, um, they locked us down immediately, but racing back to the cell, I looked inside this cell, I mean, blood all over the walls, blood all over the, sh- I mean, I mean, like nightmarish things, nightmarish, brother. You mentioned earlier that like the three years, it was just anger and frustration at what you were going through. Oh yeah, two years of that, and then I meet this guy because some guy almost not. I became a really good chess player in jail, and I'm a guy that talks a lot of junk. Like if we're playing video games, card games, chess games, I am gonna say some of the funniest but brutal things to you while I'm beating you. Uh, and, I, and I was doing that to this guy while I was beating him in chess, but he was a murderer, <laughs> and, and he almost and he almost knocked my head off. God, I've never been a fighter all my life. Right before I went to prison, I was scared as hell, and everybody said to me, uh, just be yourself now, and everything will be okay. And I go, well, how the hell am I going to do that? Because I can't fight. <laughs> like, I clearly got to be somebody else, because I can't fight. So this guy was about to knock my head off, and this Muslim guy named Farrakhan, you know, breaks it up, calms the guy down, whatever, whatever. And then Farrakhan tells me at this point, you got to stop letting this time do you. You got to do this time. You know, you got to do the best for you. And they just gave me this whole speech and song and dance that I was really bored with. And then he made me exercise the next day. And at the time, I'm 148 pounds. I'm skinny. I'm That's 148, like, wet. So I never worked out, never did any athletics or anything in my life. And uh, he's got me out there running. And, like, the first quarter mile, I'm, I'm like, this, I thought it was like a, a, a conspiracy. This guy's trying to kill me. But I stayed with it for the next year because I only served three years and six months. I stayed with it for the next year and a half. And this guy instilled some of the most amazing principles, like uh, so far as core, breathing, fitness, uh, health, mentality, everything in me um, that my family was actually scared I was going to become Muslim. <laughs> but I'm not I, I'm not religious at all. But nonetheless, yeah, he changed my life, bro. He really helped me uh, see a, a different light. And um, that's how fitness became in my life. So you did get a reduced sentence by six months as a result of that change. Yeah, I, I allowed them to brainwash me. Um, we went through the drug programs. So as long as you admit that you have all of these problems, that you're a drug addict, that you you know um, you can't control yourself in this situation, that situation, all these all these things are being documented at the same time. Okay, we'll give you some time off because you've completed these programs. But it's documented that you got all these issues and problems now. Even the most hardcore person would have difficulty seeing smoking a bit of weed as being a drug addict yeah and but you've got to kind of play along and go oh yeah i'll go to rehab <laughs> yep I, I go to i go to aa hi i'm nelly and i'm an addict hi nelly it's like really seriously i'm not guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah fuck um so you get released right and so, sometimes they say it's like as if you do your time twice because once you get out They've set the whole world against you being a success. You've got this criminal record and it, it's difficult to get a decent job and things like that. How did you, you've got this positive mindset from working with this guy. You've got into fitness, but you know, how, how did you progress from there with the odds stacked against you? Because I never looked at them like they were stacked against me. Like I said earlier, like all my life, I felt like an outcast. So of course, in prison, I was an outcast. I knew I wasn't one of these guys. And I knew I wasn't a bad person. Okay, I made a bad decision. I took it a little too far with the weed. 
Um, but I knew I wasn't a bad guy. So once you believe that, again, back to what my mom taught me, back to the premise of the book, once you believe something enough, that is your reality. So when I got out, it was just with that full confidence. Also, I was blessed that before I went away, I used to do concerts. So I had relationships with a lot of uh, media companies. And then my my aunt at the time, she was working for one. So she asked them to meet with me. And they already knew me because I used to advertise with this station. And they knew me as a good kid. So they gave me a great job straight out of jail selling radio in Philly for the number one station at the time. And I lucked up because we had the all-star NBA all-star game in Philadelphia that same year. So I made a huge name for myself with all the accounts that I grabbed, gaming accounts and club accounts. So then New York had a new radio station that was opening up. And then they called me up and doubled my salary and moved me to New York. And then from there, I became the music and fashion director, the number one selling magazine on newsstands in America. It just kind of took off from there. But in every interview, every time I, I always was very candid and transparent and telling my story. And instead of feeling hesitation or, you know, like, oh, maybe we should. They were excited, <laughs> you know, like, wow, this is cool, you know. And uh, I just used it to my advantage, to be honest with you. Like I was telling somebody this too. I got pulled over two times in one day for speeding. And I just owned it bro, both times. And both times the officers let me go. And a guy told me just today, he said, comes up to me, oh, no, I just got a huge ticket for speeding. You know, and I told the guy, blah, blah. and I said, yo, bro, if you would have just owned it, you might have got a different result. Were you ever a bit of a gangster? And the reason, I'm, the reason I mention that is like, you're a big guy, right? In terms of like, mm-hmm. you're in amazing physical shape. When you said you were 140 pounds in jail and you'd be living this lifestyle, you know, I think you mentioned a story on the other podcast I listened to of, you know, how someone was planned to kidnap you, ended up getting your girlfriend. But, you know, sometimes you don't plan for trouble, but trouble finds you, right? Absolutely. Being this sort of like nicer, smaller guy that you were till sort of like towards the end of your jail time, how were you able to survive in that environment? I took that piece of advice that they gave me before I went in and it was just be myself. Like I said, I didn't recognize it most of my life, but I am a guy that most people, when they meet me, they respect me. You know, I, I kind of, because all of my life, I've just dealt with my life. You know, I deal with my, my shit. And so people just kind of respect that because they, they see that real in you. So even around all of these murderers and gangsters and this, that, and the other, they knew I wasn't a tough guy. I'm a little small, scrawny skinny bony guy with glasses on but i still had my swag i still you know was who i am and secretly a lot of them would just respect me and then they would talk to me and they see you know okay he's got some education um so then they respected that and a whole lot of prayer bro Uh, uh, that was the other thing that saved me a whole lot of prayer and promising god when i went to prison so since i broke the promise to never sell drugs again when i went to prison i promised god if you protect me i went to prison with almost a half a million dollars in cash they didn't take any of my money any of my possessions because they didn't catch any of it they only just had this testimony of these guys so i i promised god when i was locked up i said if you protect me in here i won't sell drugs anymore i will give away my business i won't curse i won't masturbate and i won't commit any you know knowing knowingly sin and bro, this was a promise that I did not break this time. The entire time in prison, I did not curse. I did not masturbate. I had a lot of wet dreams, though. Um, <laughs> aside from, 
tons of wet dreams, which was very embarrassing, waking up in the middle of the night and your celly wakes up like, what's going on? And you got your hands in the sink with your underwear, washing them out, like nothing. Uh, uh. <laughs> very embarrassing. But yeah, man, I, I, I really just tried to live a straight and narrow life. I, I went to religious services. I tried everything. I went to uh, Jewish services, Muslim services, Christian services, Jehovah's Witness services. And then I stuck with the Jehovah's Witness while I was in there. But the more the crazy thing, the more crazy thing got while I was there spiritually is the more I started to let go of religion and just understand that there was no religion that can really explain this phenomenon that God is, in my opinion. So you would describe yourself, I guess, as a spiritual person, yes, yes, but not religious. Not religious at all. Not religious, not political. I believe all of it is a form of control. Well said. <laughs> um. <laughs> very interesting you are a very interesting guy your creative streak so i didn't actually know that much about these jobs do you want to sort of like give us a little overview of what those entailed you, you know you're clearly a creative guy how did you become this successful business person if you will in, in creative industries with that background behind you the same formula right? like uh when i believe in something when i love something i can sell it to anybody and I believed in it. You know, radio was huge at the time. Uh, it was super cool. I used it myself. And I just would explain to my advertisers how I can present their goals to the world in a cool way. Yeah, that's what it was. It was mainly my aunt. She was a really, really creative person. And she would give me some great ideas. And then I would just build off of those ideas and, um, you know, for like, Fashion was never a big thing in radio at the time and because you can't see it. So then I started thinking of different ways where I can bring this client and this client together with some visibility. And then we got this Puerto Rican day parade. So, oh, I can have all the girls do a, a fashion show like on the float. And like when it comes to ideas, it's always been there. When you have a passion like I do and the energy, like I said, it just works. That's what it was, bro. Uh, and then when I went to so in Philadelphia, I worked with a lot of the club business. So I got a lot of live broadcasting things in that nature. But then when I went to New York, they gave me not just the club business, they gave me the fashion business because they weren't getting nothing out of it anyway. And they just moved me here. So why not keep me busy there? And then I blew that up. So then from there, the Source magazine at the time, which was the number one selling magazine on newsstands in America. Yeah, yeah, it's big over here too. Yeah, the CEO calls me uh, because one of my clients and friends was a VP of a fashion house and uh, they needed a new director to lead up all their sales and um and music and um fashion. So the guy called me and goes, uh, "Yo, are you interested in this now?" And he's like, "Yeah, right. You know, whatever, whatever." And five minutes later, Dave Mays, was, who's the CEO, gives me calls my phone, and yo, can you come in and we meet? And we talked, and he's, "Dude, when you want to start?" And I'm like, "Are you serious? I'm mate. I'm a director of a major publication." And then that actually, they had a war with Eminem because they found some racist things that he said. They put that CD in all the seat in magazines and business just went to hell after that universe. Everybody boycotted us. So I said, let me get the hell out of New York. I went to Atlanta, opened up a restaurant with a friend of mine, lost all my money in less than a year. And my cousin was married to a comedian named Kevin Hart. So I, yeah, so I called Tori and Kev up and I tell them and, my cousin Tori, she goes, uh, just come on out here to L.A. You've always wanted to be an actor. That, that was my mother's dream for me uh, and mine as well, to be an actor. And she said, you always wanted to be an actor and a comedian. Come on out here. So I packed up my little 
car at the time and drove it across country to LA. And um, when I got there, I started doing stand-up comedy. Me and Kev started doing uh, celebrity poker nights. I met some people who had beautiful houses because we were going through the real estate crisis in the States at the time. So everybody had these beautiful houses that they couldn't afford to keep. They couldn't pay the mortgages. So yeah. finding creative ways for them to, you know, have income, keep their properties. So I, I knew this one guy and he was actually renting his houses out for porn shoots. And then Kev's taking me to, in the Hollywood Hills to these poker parties every night. And you got all the celebrities and all these rich guys. And, and I see the house just raking and raking and raking and clearing as much as 40000 $50,000 in a night just for eight guys playing poker. And I'm like, again, to create, what if I call him up, see if I can get his house? He's charging the porn companies 2500 for the night. That way I can hire some girls and, you know, we have massages and food and all this. Me and Kev were making a piece, 20, well, no, Kev was losing all his because he was gambling. But I was making about 25000 a night doing these poker parties. I've seen that film Molly, uh, Molly's Game, you know, Molly Bloom. Uh, running those card games that that's that's fascinating i can't, can't believe you did all these things i forgot about the kevin cart thing but emma had told me and then um at that point i'm in, I'm in la and everybody who meets me they're all like yo, yo dude where you come from and that question always happens i think emma said the same thing when i sat down with her like so who are you tell me about you and i would just tell people my story and where i am now and everybody would just always be so fascinated and so inspired uh and then i came to miami um on a layover from uh, Dominican Republic, I didn't want to get a hotel room. So I thought about this girl who I met years ago and we never really connected. And I said, I want to stay with her tonight. So I guess what I'll do is I'll tell her my story because we don't really know each other. I tell her my story that I make her feel comfortable and then we'll have a beautiful night. So we meet up, I tell her my story and she convinces me in this night that I need to write a book. And I'm like, what? Like, I thought I wasn't smart enough to write a book. I, you know, I want to do a movie about my life or a television show. I didn't want a book, but, you know, it became that new challenge that I wanted to achieve. So I knew I couldn't do it in L.A. because in L.A., you know, people meet you and they say, what do you do? You know, then um, you say what you do and they go, oh, yeah. So, I, you know, have you done it before? Can I Google you? Whatever, whatever. And they just kill everybody's dream. So I wanted to be in a place where nobody knew me, where I can be completely new. And uh, so I moved to Melbourne, Australia, started writing a book. And this book took some time to produce, right? And you've cut it down from a, a reasonably hefty tome to just 175 pages, right? It was a, it was a glossary at first, um, <laughs> like a full-blown Webster's Dictionary. I tried to put every single thing in there. And I was getting great reviews from everybody, but it, I didn't feel good about it. The points that I really wanted to drive home with people the things that would really serve as reflections would get lost if the story kept going on further and further and further, which gave me the idea. I met with some producers in London. They want to do this whole Netflix miniseries because that's really what it is. You can't put this story in one book. It's something that kind of got to lives on. So um, I took a lot of it out, you know, so we can hone in on basically the times in my life that were like transformations. So hopefully people will, like I said, again, be entertained, but as well see those reflections the producer of your book currently right he did like the black klansman oscar-winning film is that correct that was my agent ah i was talking about that on the podcast as well because she was like why didn't you release it when you were supposed to because one i wanted to cut it two i just wasn't getting the response that i was looking for i'm publishing the book myself now via amazon 
So you've sold your story to Netflix, right? No, not yet, not yet, not yet. Uh, We're just all still talking right now. I should, probably shouldn't even said it. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just talking right now, getting to know each other. Right, so the agent's basically got to ring up and say, show me the money. And these are the producers. Netflix isn't even in the uh, equation yet, but that's the way, uh, of course, I, like I, with this dream awake mentality, that's where I already see it at. What can people get from your book? You know, is it a self-improvement book? What do you want the reader to walk away with? Basically that we are the creators of our own reality and that originates in thought. You got to tell yourself you're sad to actually be sad. Um, So basically, uh, dreaming awake is, it's just about taking that next step. I feel like every moment that we sit in fear or doubt or judgment of ourselves Every step that we take forward, fear disintegrates. If, if, if I'm clear in that, it, I, I don't know if I'm clear if the way I just said that, but basically to dream awake is to step away from fear. And I was trapped in fear for so long. And I, on my journey, all the people that I've met, so many, many, many people all over the world, we share that same pain. We share that same fight with fear. And that's what Dream Awake is all about. The stories that I talk about in the book are ways for people to step out of that fear and accomplish anything that they want because we are the creators of our own reality. And it all starts with our thoughts. You've been incredibly open and candid in the book, including disclosing that you've been sexually Mm -hmm. abused, which is, you know, there's a massive stigma for men to come out with that. How important was it for you to be entirely authentic and not hold anything back with this book it was a few people that I, I, i've spoken to since i opened up about it um and us speaking about it made a huge huge change in their lives like i said earlier for for you to deal with anything for you to heal from anything you first have to face it so of course, it's not a popular choice for me to talk about. And it's going to, you know, a lot of questions will arise while well, he was in jail. And, you know, did this happen? I get those questions all the time anyway. No, nothing ever happened in jail. But I knew that if I brought it up, um, again, a person that you wouldn't expect or think that these things happen to, it would make somebody else feel just a little more comfortable talking about it themselves. And once we talk about it, then we're healing. Yeah, that's right. That is right. So I took that one for I took that one for the team. Um. <laughs> You're doing a podcast alongside the book, right? Um, I've listened yeah. to, I've previewed actually your first episode with Angie. Mm-hmm. Lucky you, only person that ever heard it. <laughs> Grandma didn't even hear it yet. Lucky you. Thank you. But, uh, I yeah, feel honoured. I think Jim might have listened to it too if he's if he's got through the flu. I was really looking forward to talking to Jim too because we got that Philly connection. Yeah. No, definitely. You you guys would definitely relate on, I think, on quite a lot of things. So, but yeah, you were saying about the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say your next guest is like Lee Ryan, yeah. who's in like a, a big boy band in the UK called Blue. Do you want to preview that and talk about the podcast for us and the purpose, how long it's going to run for? And Initially, I just was going to do four episodes for the four weeks leading up to the book. But as well, like as always, I got creative with the way I wanted to do it. So we recorded four in London. Now I'll record four somewhere else, another part of the world that I've lived in. Basically, it's about taking people again, who some people might look at as superheroes, which they really are. They really are superheroes. And talking to them and about real life pain that they've dealt with, 
real life fear that they still live with. And then just having that cool conversation, kind of like me and you, uh, where it doesn't seem too dramatic. Um, but again, for people to see their own superpowers, the show is all about those three questions, uh, the superpowers, uh, and then we just really explore and, and run from that point. Uh, and it, immediately it's going to get people to question and, oh, what superpower would I want? And then, you know, at the end of the show, you, we, we show people that the superpowers that you wish you had, you already have them. To people who are listening to you thinking, that guy's incredible, but I don't have any superpowers. Like, what, what are we kind of talking about here? Okay, so my last superpowers that I wished for were I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to teletransport, and I wanted the power to heal. And when I dropped that last one on everybody, they always, oh, man, I should have picked that one. Oh, man, I want to heal too. And then once we finished the book, uh, Angie actually said to me, Nelly, you've got all your superpowers that you say you wish for. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes, well, one, you're invisible once this book comes out because so many people are going to get to know you, but you're actually not there. You're invisible. And then two, you teletransport because you're all over the world, wherever somebody's reading your words, you're with them all over the world. And then three, you want the power to heal. And that's exactly what you do already with your fitness and your coaching. Uh, but you'll do even more with this book. So it's just that simple. And it's like, it's not, a, you know, one of those patronizing mind games like, oh, yeah, yeah. These are really things that will change a person's life when they see that they have all the powers yeah. that they request, pray for, hope for every day. You have it right now. Dream awake, baby. Is this a process for highlighting those things or is it like your story will inspire and help people realize how you found yours? It's a couple different processes. People like Farrakhan, Gina, Gail, it's a couple different people in the book who helped me see things and gave me that clarity uh, and it all adds up at the end with the final meeting of Katutlier in Bali. You remember this movie, uh, book, Eat, Pray, Love? yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I met with Katutlier uh, as I was just starting the book uh, because it's another reason I was in Bali because I wanted to find my mom's spirit. And he told me that she was with me every day. And I said, yeah, but I want to see her. And he said, but she's with you. He said, look, if you need something to see, and he drew this hand and the hand is tattooed on my um, shoulder. And he said, well, she said to me, fear nothing under it. So Katutlier drew a tattoo for me. <laughs> Wonderful. I wanted to touch on fitness before I kind of come on to like, you know, what's going on with you now and for the future. What does that look like for you? Right. You got into fitness in prison. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, first of all. I never wanted to be one of those guys. And I never uh, I never got into that whole weight thing. The cool thing about what the guy Farrakhan had taught me was that your power is your breath. Breathing. Farrakhan was so ahead of his time because there's so many breathing classes now that are huge and taking off and you know, flexibility. And he taught me all of these basic things that didn't require any weights, all body weight exercising, how to build on your cardiovascular by simply breathing, how using your breath can calm your thoughts, you know, but it was based all off of his religious beliefs. This was all a part of his Islam sect. So yeah, I just adopted these things and these habits in my everyday life. And once I got out of prison, Everywhere I went around the world, I was always finding the time to go ahead and run a couple miles, four miles and, you know, do different exercises because he taught me how to, you know, move my body in different ways. And it's a whole completely different exercise, working more muscles. So I kind of fell in love with this when I 
finally made it to because uh, I started writing a book in Australia and then I moved to Holland and then I moved to Istanbul. And by the time I got to Istanbul, I was running out of money. And my friends were like, well, why don't you coach people in this fitness stuff that you do? But I never thought in a million years that, you know, I could ever do something like that because I don't have this background or whatever. And they go, but you love what you do and you know so much. And it worked out. Uh, they got me a couple clients and then it, it, I brought it back to the States and it took off, it became a huge business in New York. And then I expanded it to uh, Miami. Just elaborate on when you say huge business in New York, what kind of mm-hmm. setup are we talking? Did you have like a physical location or was it online learning or what did that look like? Uh, yeah, I had a physical location and it was called Equinox um, in Rockefeller. So yeah, they're great gyms, those. I became... You'll get the best clients with the most Yeah, money. well, I was the... Yeah, and that's what just happened. I was, I was the last of 32 trainers hired. And within four months, I became the number one trainer on the floor because what I was doing was different than everybody else. I bought this energy and people just wanted to train with me. So uh, my book filled up really fast. I was, you know, training 12 hours a day and I would only put like maybe eight on the books. And of course, management knew this because the other people would just be my privates. You know, now I got my other privates coming in as well because I don't want to go to them. Like I'm here at Equinox, I'm the number one trainer. So management kind of like turned the eye and let me bring and work with my clients because my clients were basically, instead of buying 24 sessions with Equinox, they would buy 12 with me and then 12 with Equinox. And um, it just turned into a, a huge business. And then I didn't, we did get another location. I hired other trainers um, and then I didn't really have to train anymore. So I came to Miami to just relax. And then I walked into a beach house and, you know, meet some amazing people. And I started the business here. Then from here, I took on um, three, four seasons, and one of my clients gives me an island to do my retreats, and then I took the retreat to Africa. It, it just keeps going. It's kind of like the same pattern. I just like to keep creating. We'll come on to the retreats in a minute, but could you walk us through what the kind of mm-hmm. the routine or what you like to do with your clients? I guess it's quite calisthenics-based. Um, a lot of calisthenics-based uh, core, and my clients range from mid thirties to mid eighties. So the first thing we do is always work on flexibility. Uh, so my whole concept is elongating your spine, stretching the body out as long as you can, and then correcting it from that point. The programs are built around flexibility, corrective movement, corrective functional movement, because if you're moving properly, like if you're doing your lunges perfectly, if you're doing your squats perfectly and things, like that, then you're you're creating a stronger alignment with your body. So everything evens out. So all those imbalances and compensations that you have in your body, it's healing throughout this exercise program. So we'll do three like healing movements uh, and strengthening movements followed by one hard cardio movement. And it's that constant mix of interval, uh, burn fast, corrective training. I mean, obviously you're working at Equinox, Soho Beach House, top-end venues with top-end clients, but you really do work with like the top mm-hmm. one percenters. So you've, your clients include things like the Qatari royal family and a lot of famous people, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you find working with those kind of characters? Do they demand more of you? Do they expect more? Oh, no. I don't treat them any different. They don't treat me any different. We got to, like the one thing... Um, I spend all my time with my clients. If I'm not with my clients, I'm usually by myself because we form a relationship immediately and a trust immediately with each other. They know that I'm doing everything that I can to be my best. And I know the same with them. Uh, So the trust factor is built and it's an amazing time. I love my clients. 
when you say they don't treat you any different, they do fly you around the world to train them, which most people don't do. <laughs> Wait, all trainers don't do that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know it 100%. I'm extremely, extremely blessed in that sense that um, that I'm able to work with so many privileged people that you know they can afford it. And that was the thing. Uh, I didn't want to be a trainer at first because I didn't think trainers made money. And that's what I told my friend when he said, you should be a trainer. I said, trainers don't make any money. And he goes, no, the price is whatever you say it is. Just make the value match that. Then at that point, it's like I give this amazing service that's worth this amount of money that they just appreciate it so much. And then they know they feel the sincerity from it as well. So it's, it's a beautiful relationship. I love our listeners to like sort of walk away with a few things they can use. If you were to like top line a few of your big tips for getting in great shape you know you've you've people your clients have talked about massive changes being achieved in just two weeks Mm -hmm. what are your things that right do these things instant difference uh instant difference stretching stretching flexibility getting the most optimal movement out of every rotation and exercise that you do so many people don't stretch and when you when you're not stretching you're forming inflammation in the body and the body gets really 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 tight and that's why a lot of these, you know, bodybuilders and people who lift heavy weights, they got this, you know, sometimes funny deformity about their shape and their posture. So I say flexibility, always looking in the mirror to look at your posture, to look at what sides look uneven. And once you do everything, like to get the body aligned and flexible, then it's about breathing. And all of these things are life lessons. Like it's not just fitness. It's, you know, what I, what I teach is, you know, life fitness, wellness. Uh, in a sense that everything that we do, you can still do some ways form in your life, the way we breathe, the way we eat, things of that nature. So what the advice that I would give people out there is stretching is very, very, very important before and after you exercise, finding a rhythm with your breath when you're exercising. A lot of times you'll hear people exercising and they sound like they're losing their breath. They, <laughs> you want a, a exhale with every exertion of power. These little things, it, game changers game changes. And like I said, look at your alignment. A lot of times people on on a bench press and their backs all arched up because they're trying to get this heavy weight off of them. And with that position that you're putting your body in, your body's now going to create compensation. You're opening up for injuries. So always look at your body when you're exercising. Always stretch as much as possible. And more importantly than anything, breathe. Let's talk about the retreats. Yeah. What, What are you doing there? The retreats started off just as something beautiful for my clients. Basically, a self-love experience, bringing a kinesiologist from Ukraine uh, who does muscle testing and does it in the sense where your body learns, not just your brain, your body learns the right position in the body, the way your body is supposed to be aligned. Once I do the exercises, then he tests the muscles. So your body literally memorizes how you're supposed to be. You know, we work with the nutrition. It's, it's a total cleanse, a total self-love. I love myself more than anything in the world. And I'm going to start treating myself like that type of retreat. And then it's fun. (laughs) They got all kinds of challenges and stuff. What does the future hold for you? The future is very bright. And it's funny you said it because I said to somebody today, I got a great email from a production company that wanted to talk. and, And I said, you know what? I'm at that point now where I can't look away from the light anymore. So the future is very bright. I'm, I'm looking forward to, um, I met with some people at, uh, a company that is very dear to me and it would be a dream to work alongside them with uh, some amazing projects. So I met them when I was in London. Uh, so hopefully something positive happens from that. 
The book comes out April 5th. Hopefully we'll be working on the mini series, another book, the process of writing Dream Awake. I went through so many dark periods of doubt and fear, but I am really wholeheartedly living Dream Awake right now. So the book's going to be out on uh, the 5th of April. It's called Dream Awake. Yeah. If people want to get hold of you, what's the best place? The Nell Man on Instagram or? Yep. The underscore Nell underscore man, two L's and Nell as well as Facebook, Nellie Davis. And my fitness page is In Fit Life. And is in Nellie, F-I-T, life, infitlife.com. And look out for me, Amazon, April 5th. Nellie, it's really been a awesome. pleasure. We'd love to get you back on the show when kind of Jim's back to his health. So, you know, may- maybe like in a year's time when the book's going well, you probably would have long since forgotten about us and outgrown us by then. No, brother, no, brother, <laughs> no. We're going to stay connected, definitely. Yeah, for real. Next time you're in London, we've got to catch up. And if I'm in Philly or Miami Absolutely. Too. I'll be there in a couple of weeks, hopefully. I'll be, I'll be in London really soon. I'll see you soon, brother. All right. Primal Radio. Peace out. have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.